I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is composer, vocalist, and performance artist, Liz Gray. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Liz Gray is a composer, vocalist, and performance artist, writing genreless compositions with black women for black women. Her practice is rooted in storytelling and the viscerality of the imaginary. Currently, she is a PhD student at City University of London in the UK, studying how ethnographic composition can best answer questions around the black woman, immigrant, expat, transnational identity. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start just by chatting a little bit about the content, the subject matter that you're exploring. And on your website, you say, in my practice, I collaborate with self-identified women and femme of the African diaspora. And I wonder if you could describe the subjects, the stories, the communities that are the focus of your work. That's a great question. And I will just say through my work, it is always my hope to not be the one describing. You know, I don't want to buck your question, uh, the first question of our of our conversation, but I think it's it's really important because I have I have really tried to work through a process that doesn't place me, uh, the composer, and oftentimes the only person named as author for these works doesn't place me as the expert or as the, the person speaking on behalf. Um, but rather is in conversation with and is presenting a moment in time. But to answer your question a little bit more directly, um, I actually just wrote a little bit. Uh, someone else was asking, what does it mean to identify as Black? And in answering that question, I thought about the expansiveness, the the beauty, the richness, the uniqueness, the unusualness <laughs> of what it means to be black. I think in essence, that's what I'm exploring through this work. Um, I am exploring the richness, the imaginary, the vastness, the indescribable. Um, I think what I, what I love the most about what I'm doing is that I'm allowing those things to speak for themselves through story. Okay. Gives a little bit of a place to start from. What is it that draws you to those landscapes and those particular stories? I don't shy away from the fact that the beginning uh, of this for me is me. What draws me to these landscapes are questions that I've asked myself and my family. Um, I really vibe well with this idea of reflexivity. And as a researcher, I use the reflexive voice or my own voice to, um, I understand that it has a role and a place in both the research and then subsequently the, the music that I'm working with. But for me, the beginning, the origin was kind of a feeling of disconnect. And I think a lot of people, especially in the diaspora, feel a sense of disconnect or longing or even curiosity. Um, you know, who am I? Where do we come from? And, and unfortunately, that is the that is one of the common threads of the Black American experience. But for me, it, it, became, it was very personal from the start. I, I wanted to know who the matriarchs of my family were, uh, but I didn't want necessarily want to know when they lived um, and what city they lived in. I, I was more interested in what their favorite flowers were. Um, how they decided to dress themselves on a daily basis, um, what their experience was like, what they thought. Um, I was really interested in getting in their head, trying to trying to have as close to a um, out of body experience with my own family members as I could. Now, for me, the only way to have an out of body experience is to do it through music. It seems very uh, unusual, but 
to me, it's, it's just the way that I get through life. It's through having transcendental, <laughs> spiritual, otherworldly experiences. And for the listeners, that might be really strange to hear, but for me, that's just like every day. And so music was that way for me to get into the heads, the lives, the hearts, um, and the eyes of my ancestors, especially the women ancestors. Um, but because I've also had a very keen awareness of the interconnectedness of all of our stories, I very quickly wanted to enlarge the lens through which I was looking to include the, the diasporic voice. And so at about the same time as I realized that I wanted to learn about my family, I realized that I wanted to connect my family's story to the stories of others and their families and so on and so forth. And so then we've got these works that are, are, are about connecting different threads of our story. So Whispered Like the Wind was that first attempt. And, and it was really about connecting the threads of spirituality, the threads of birth and of motherhood and daughterhood, that, that very initial um, connection between mother and daughter. And then you've got the thread of domesticity and advocacy uh, that that is what is the bridge in Requiem. Requiem is a is a piece that pays homage to the lives of women suffragettes who had to balance being domestics in the twenties, not domestic workers, but you know, living a very domestic life with their desire, their need, um, passion for advocacy for women's voting rights. And so then there's those threads as well. And so all of the, the projects and works in between that, they're all just working to highlight, illuminate different threads of what I'm hoping can be perceived as the same story. You mentioned getting to the heads of mm-hmm. th- these, these people, some quite intimately connected to you and some part of a, you know, a broader tapestry. And it occurred to me, it, it almost felt as if that is um, you with your researcher head on because you're a PhD student and, and there's a rigor that comes with that. And yet you are using a deeply creative, emotionally resonant medium to express this, which is, as you say, through music. I wonder if talking about connection and disconnection, I'm curious if you're aware of any tension between as it were, the the head and the heart, the the, mm. the clinical side of storytelling as transmuted into this sort of creative expression of it. I definitely fight that battle every day, uh, especially because of the type of medium that I'm in. I find myself, when it comes to experimental music and, and future music, as it were, I don't actually think I'm that far into the experimental realm as I thought I was. That has its pros and cons, right? So some of the pros are that I'm writing music that can be um, sometimes more easily understood or felt than some other experimental music. But the con of that is that I often find myself at odds with the methods of traditional music making, right? I find myself sometimes at odds with song form. Uh, don't even get me started on the fact that I've done both soul music and also classical music. So I'm dealing with, you know, am I writing this piece in ABA song form or do I want to completely throw that out of the, throw that out of the question? You know, all that to say, a lot of times my head shows up in the actual music writing and lucky for me, I have a great team of mentors, uh, especially my supervisor. So my supervisor intimately knows that this is a emotionally driven project and constantly invites me to make room for the heart in the compositions. And and so he's, he really encourages me to remember the organic piece, the improvisation, all of the things that sometimes we can pass off as not important musically, but he knows and he sees and he helps me to see how they are both important and validated in the music some of your work maybe all of your work i don't don't know um seems to be looking at 
connections backwards in time and mm -hmm. and maybe spreading uh, sort of geographically and in terms of you know familial connection but your work lives on and i wonder if you think about telling a story forward or thinking about the implications of time in your work given that there are daughters and granddaughters and other people about to in the future embark on their own diaspora of sorts I wonder if you think about the resonance your work has looking ahead. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, that to me is where process really comes in. So when I make music, the music writing does not begin with a note or a tone on the keyboard. It begins with a conversation, as does my research. So the research is the composition. The composition is the research. I'm still trying to figure out how to make that work. Ask me in three years when I have a dissertation. <laughs> um, but the, to really think about how the future exists in these, in these storylines and in these stories, that to me is where I pay a lot of attention again to the interview, the conversation. So though I might be having a conversation with someone about their past, what lives in that space in our conversation, the hesitance, the laughter, the joy of memory, the concern of future, all of those things that are happening in that space, in that time, those moments find their way into the composition as well. And that was one of the first things that I noticed when I was using this process. And I noticed that in Whispered Like the Wind, you know, I was having these conversations with women about, you know, tell me the stories that your mothers told you that your grandmother told you? What do you remember growing up about spirituality? And yeah, they were the content of what they were saying was a, a memory, but the joy that they felt, the excitement that they felt, that was happening right then and there in that moment. When asking them to think about what it was like to be a daughter, I could see them thinking about the flip side of that or the inverse of what it might be like to be a parent in a really unexpected and still hard for me to describe way all time periods were existing in that moment. And then I immediately felt a responsibility to represent that in the music somehow. The snippet that I can, that is available for public consumption is glory, glory. And it's an adaptation of a spiritual featuring Marissa Mansouré on cello. Here's a piece of Whispered Like the Wind for people to hear what you're talking about.
Thank you. Another piece then that I think intrigues me now, now that we're sort of moving into thinking about process is Requiem for their Golden Jubilee. And what seems really interesting to me is that that, as you said, started with a conversation with someone. And it was that conversation and the fluidity and the evolution and the unexpected turns in a conversation that itself informed then you as you began to put down notes and compositions. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just maybe sharing that particular process, that particular project, as a way perhaps to I- illustrate how you go about this. So a little bit of a backstory. When I moved to London, uh, you know, everything's in boxes, right? Um, and I'm just now unpacking the boxes and then a pandemic hits, right? Uh, no big deal. Just an everyday pandemic. <laughs> And then on top of that, we've got two of my home cities, Minneapolis and Omaha, effectively burning because of rage and pain and sadness, right? And enough is enoughness. And somehow I still expected myself to make music. I I don't quite know. No, I do know why I had that expectation. That expectation comes from the idea that we're all given to just push forward, press ahead. And as um, I've now learned from being in London, the Brits like to say, have a stiff upper lip. In that time, I realized that I could not make music the way I knew how to make music, yet I still needed this tool to process through all of the things. And I found through, I was introduced to graphic notation just as a simple, almost icebreaker exercise at the Soundry portion of the Omaha Under the Radar Festival. Stacy, who was, who was introducing the idea, talked about graphic notation as a way to just express. And so I did that. But what was interesting about that process was that she also introduced this idea of making a graphic notation of a stream of consciousness recording. That was really, really interesting to me. So when I was collaborating with Zalika Azim, who is a photographer and installation artist based in New York, she told me that she wanted to work with me to make a score, but we have great conversations. So I said, hey, Zalika, do you want to try this thing with me? I can't promise you that it will make a great piece of music, but you're my friend. I'm your friend. We can take this risk, right? We have time, right? <laughs> um, and she said, yeah, let's do it. And so it was in that time that I formally first experimented with this process that is now very much a part of my creative practice. After about five hours of conversation, I said, hey, Zalika, can you just record yourself talking? Just don't prepare, don't write any notes, which I love her, but it was very hard for, for her to do that. She likes to be prepared. And so I had her record about five minutes and, and I took those five minutes and made a graphic notation of that conversation. And then after that, I only looked at my graphic notation as a piece of sheet music. It is from that that we hear what Requiem is uh, musically. And so essentially we've got, I think, four layers of interpretation that has gone on and gone in to make this piece what it is. It's Yeah, I'm really, really happy with that process, with that experience. Um, Yeah. I've always had a little bit of synesthesia or this, this seeing music kind of quality about my mind. Certain colors evoke certain tones for me. Certain numbers evoke those tones as well. Um, And then when I'm listening to music, I'm seeing a very vivid, very vivid, sometimes quite annoyingly vivid array of colors and lines and things like that. So the graphic scores that you all see are my attempt to wrangle the vividness and just put it in front of me. Now, sometimes uh, I write graphic scores before a big commission. So we invoke the black to rest started with a, a graphic score just so that I could see a framework and feel what I wanted. I'm wondering what else you've found you've had to adapt to because of your change of context, your change of geography, or you know the, the change wrought by the pandemic. Yeah, that was just one major adaptation. I think the other biggest adaptation was letting go of this idea that I wasn't doing it right. I was very used to I was very used to being the person that doubted myself. I was very used to 
uh, being unsure about my process, unsure about my quality as a composer, as a singer. Um, so I think a lot of times we get comfortable in our doubt. I was there. And in this time, I had to shed that identity. And that adaptation is what definitely changed everything. So now we're going to hear Requiem for their Golden Jubilee.
stars are aligning, planets are moving, and, and the sun is spotlighting you. It feels like a lot of things are coming together for you creatively and also um, practically in terms of the quality of your work, the recognition of that, the commissions. You just mentioned We Invoke the Black to Rest, which was a collaborative performance with textile and performance artist N.M. Bawanyo. And uh, it was a response to the artist Lynette Yardin Boachia's Flying League with the Night, which was at Tate Britain. And it feels like that's a really, really important moment in your journey to date. It also seems to highlight something that seems to be profoundly integral and important to your work, which is the idea of collaboration. And so I'm really curious then if you, if you would talk a little bit more about where you feel like you're at so far with your creative work and how collaboration plays into it. For my work, collaboration has been a necessity. There also was a time where I was trying to limit the amount of collaboration that I needed because I felt like I couldn't stand on my own musically. Let that go. <laughs> and realized that there was a role for collaboration um, that was very in uh, integral to my practice. And so on on the one hand, we've got collaboration with other artists like Enam, like Peju, like Marissa, where we we are coming together in a in a common way of making a work that we'll present together. But collaboration also plays a major role in my compositional process. Um, so coming at composition from a, a place of ethnography in the compositional process, I'm using interview to distribute authorship to of the composition itself. And so for me, it's more than having these conversations lend towards inspiration for musical pieces but rather to collaborate with community members, um, with my friends, with people I don't know, to make something together and then share the authorship, share the, uh, the credit for that. And so my question then is how does that impact? If, if you're credited properly with authoring your own story, how does that affect you? And then also how does that affect the music? I'm wondering not only how you see yourself in in these stories and this creative output, but I'm also wondering how you feel you have changed as well because of mm. this creative collaboration that you're talking about. I've been trying to figure out my role and where my voice goes in this from the beginning. Uh, I think some of my earliest studio visits, I remember a, a conversation with Vanessa German when she was at, uh, at the Union and that was one of the major questions that she asked me during our studio visit that I'm still pondering the answer to, which I think I will be for forever. But I don't want to extract my voice. Rather, I really want my voice to sound like it's in harmony with the voices around me. It's about raising the voices of others musically, um, whether that is through a, an electronic way so we invoke the black included other voices electronically weaved into a composition. Sometimes I elevate voices through musical interpretation, right? So a deep, rich woman's voice to me sounds like a cello. And so if there's a story that needs to be told by cello, like just know that that is somebody's mother is telling that story in that piece. <laughs> As I consider my role in the, in the process or, or how it's really changed me, I have felt an overwhelming sense of responsibility to this work. And I haven't really talked about it much um, to anyone, really. <laughs> Maybe my mom. She knows, she knows that I feel, I feel a lot of pressure a lot of times. But to articulate it better, it is responsibility because I feel that I am in service to something. I don't know exactly where that came from. I, it might have been just what I was born with to carry. Um, but the more that I have stepped into what, you know, you've kind of identified as these planets aligning and things clicking and sun shining, um, or my purpose, it has felt like the responsibility to do this um, authentically, to do this work well, to do it with the utmost integrity feels dire. Like that is the only thing that I am here to do and I must do it. So that responsibility has, has definitely changed me. It has made me really take a moment to be in tune with my ego because my ego messes up 
the the ego is what says oh this music is supposed to sound like this it sounds too weird liz you can't produce music like that they're not gonna like it that's the ego but the the sense of by yourself the sense of purpose says no just be the vessel if this is what you hear if this is what is supposed to be played then that's what it is what do you feel like you might like to share in terms of any audio just to illustrate some of the things we've been talking about i don't know what to say is a piece that was my first foray into composing in a cyclical process of speech of of, of um sorry a cyclical process of stream of consciousness speaking to graphic notation to improvisational playing and so i don't know what to say was written in the height of despair and in the height of frustration sadness and rage uh taking place during the global protests for black lives when i didn't really have anything that i felt i could adequately say to describe how i was feeling but i was feeling a lot and so i recorded the snippet of my emotion in that time and played what i heard so we'll hear that now How uh, how do people? I think a- any artist says this period of letting go uh, once it enters the public realm, and obviously I don't mean in terms of the legal sense of property rights and and that sort of thing. But once a poet, an author, an artist, a musician has allowed their work out into the um, into the public realm, it's being consumed by people. But whoever's seeing it is interpreting it in their own way. I'm wondering if that's a difficult process for you and also what feedback you've had on your work as other people have interpreted it for themselves. Yeah, it is at first terrifying. But for me, more often than not, that that, that piece then takes on another life of performance or a life of itself because the work that I make is so visceral and and is so feeling forward, the way that people interact with it is the piece taking on another performance for me. So We Invoke the Black to Rest, for example, um, was crafted to be a moment of global rest. What was interesting to me is that each person watching had their own personal performance, essentially, because their engagement, their relationship to their own idea of rest made that moment different across the globe for anyone watching at any time. And so I think as long as I remember that, um, I really never feel like pieces are done as if they will never change again, um, because I firmly believe that when someone else is experiencing it, that experience becomes another performance and another performance. What would be the Liz Gray short version of 
born in Omaha, childhood was like, and then sort of where, where you went. So the short version of my life, got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ruth Gray, born Elizabeth Nicole Lassiter <laughs> to Doris and Ralph Lassiter in Omaha, Nebraska, three months earlier than expected. And I want to say that that means something other than I'm incredibly blessed to be here because uh, losing a whole trimester in the womb is not just, you know, it's not just a little thing here. Of my adolescence, 40% of it was spent in the South, either geographically in the South or um, the South was brought into my home on 108th and Fort by way of, you know, cultural traditions and things like that. My family comes from Vicksburg, Mississippi and West Memphis, Arkansas. And I say that to say, um, or to maintain memory. I really believe in the impact of oral tradition. So when I say where I'm from, I, I always love to talk about all of where I am from. But growing up in Omaha, I lived a really comfortable life. Um, my father was past, is a pastor. My mom is an all-around wonder woman. She's always been an advocate, both with her works and with her, with her word for women, for children. That is kind of the household that I grew up in. They were very encouraging. They, they saw a spark in me that I didn't know yet how to describe. And so I think a lot of my childhood was trying to figure out how to keep that spark lit. I did a lot of bouncing around in terms of digging into different ideas and practices and art making ways. So I, I did piano with uh, Dr. Claudette Valentine, who is uh, an Omaha legend um, for about 10 years and ballet, uh, Omaha Academy of Ballet. Again, just very Omaha. I think I was talking to someone the other day about just how Omaha all of my art upbringing was and how amazing it is to be able to recognize that. But that's besides the point. So yeah, ballet, piano, like always doing some sort of creative something, but then also always kind of being an overachiever in school, <laughs> uh, not because I wanted to, but because it was a requirement <laughs> to be uh, a Lassiter. One must have uh, a strong level of academic excellence. And so that was my life. It was school, then an after-school activity, then home. It sounds to me as if there was a pretty high level of talent and a high bar as well for every Lassiter you included. And so at, at some point you, you bloomed and flourished and you went off somewhere else to further that flourishing. Yeah. You know, I thought that I was flourishing in a lot of different ways at a couple key points in my life. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I thought, yes, sociology, that is where I will flourish. So I majored in sociology, uh, moved to Minnesota to at first to do a year of service with AmeriCorps and then really trying to focus on youth work. So I knew that I wanted to work in education and I thought that after school education was the place that I, I really could serve best. I would say that I grew in a 10 year career in youth work, essentially from high school through five years in Minneapolis where I was doing, I was a community, community center director Man, that to me was like the, that was my dream job. I was running a rec center. Oh my gosh. I got to have fun and got paid for it. And like, I got to plan fun and I got paid for it. It was amazing. <laughs> but at the same time, I realized that I did not just want to plan fun. I wanted to fund fun. So I uh, was getting my master's degree in arts and cultural management at the time and realized that I was one, a lot more like my mom than I thought, because I really enjoyed fundraising and grant writing. And two, that again, I wanted to make it possible for organizations to be able to do everything that they dreamed of. And so grant writing was the logical next step for me. And I began flourishing again and doing a community focused, community centered uh, development work really engaging with marketing and, and engagement as well as development. Through all of that, though, I was writing music. And through all of that, I was realizing that the music had a lot more to say, a little bit more of a, 
forceful hand on my heart to say, to say I think that that makes the most sense. Um, I thought I, w- I was doing really well in these uh, periods of flourishing. I thought I was getting jobs that I really enjoyed. And then I thought I was doing a good job at. And yet I realized very quickly that it wasn't for me in this time. And that something else was more important for me. And that in order to fulfill that, I needed to take a risk. And that risk had to be betting on myself. And so after leaving Minnesota in 2018, I came back to Omaha to regroup, recalibrate. And I'm going to say this lovingly directly into the mic. Denise Chapman changed my life as soon as I made it back into Omaha. Literally 24 hours after I arrived, um, she met me for lunch and asked me to play a role in More Than Neighbors in 2018. And that was the spark that my purpose needed to latch onto. And since then, that spark, this creative spark, this uh, writing, composing, research, storytelling, um, this huge, it feels so huge, like a a giant fire that uh, I cannot control, um, that does not consume me, but is me. Um, and that is the spark that was lit back in May of 2018. And that I'm now kind of riding the wave on at this moment. In addition to trying to come back to Omaha to recalibrate uh, professionally, I was also trying to recalibrate personally. So I was not expecting to find love in my hometown at all. And I did. And I think that also was another spark that lit this rocket that is now here, you know, Um, again, timing, universe aligning, the planets shifting and the sun shining. Oh my goodness. Um, So yeah, you know, I'm here in London with the love of my life doing, doing the work that is the love of my life. And I, I feel like I'm just here as long as I do what I'm told to do. And I say that, you know, universally, if I do what I'm, what I'm supposed to do, then the, then the rocket will just keep going. The fire will just keep burning. Um, we will ask, we'll have more questions to, to ask and to answer. There will always be more music to be written. We've talked a little bit about geography, but we've also talked about the people and the stories that, that are subject matter that you're celebrating and creatively rendering. And also the process, this collaborative process is deeply, deeply intimate and personal involving other human beings in this creative art. I'm wondering how these fit together uniquely for you at the moment in London. So you are now part of an interesting diaspora. You talked about the American South. You talked about um, the Black experience, especially the Black female experience over time and now. And I'm wondering if you feel as if your own story, perhaps your own life, is um, shifting, being informed by now being an expat, is being changed by the fact that your cultural reference points are being reoriented because of where you are and who you are, both in terms of your life and um, your place. So I'm just wondering how all of these things are perhaps making you rethink what stories are, what stories contain, whose stories need to be told, this sort of thing? First, I'll just say, um, I consider myself an immigrant. Um, and that is an interesting label coming from an American lens, right? As an immigrant of color, to be very specific, is often fraught. Um, but now that I am an American immigrant, weird, you know, in England, <laughs> The reference points, you're right, have changed. However, the story, um, what I'm hearing from my Black British counterparts is that it is so relevant still. You know, I thought that I was going to have a hard time replicating or digging into this process because I was so intrigued or because I was so entrenched in my own lens. Um, But rather... I'm hearing from, like I said, my Black British female counterparts who have said that it is still our story. Um, what I think is most exciting for me is that because of the um, the story of movement of Black British people here from the Caribbean and from the continent, 
um, being so much what I, the way that I describe it, and this may be completely wrong. I'm still new. So anyone listening and who finds offense, please forgive me and write me so we can, so I can be corrected. Um, I feel that the experience here of black Caribbean and West African peoples in Britain, their experiences are so much closer to the point of origin in a way that is much different than the black American experience. Um, a lot of that has to do with having a place of origin that is a, a little bit more easily identifiable, um, knowing that you come from Belize, knowing that you come from Trinidad or Jamaica or Lagos, or, you know, knowing, just having that sense of knowing um, offers a different perspective. Um, and so I'm trying to find in, as I, in my research, especially, I'm trying to find a place to hold that difference um, and to recognize and write about, reflect and analyze that difference, my lens versus the lens of the people that I'm working with, but also trying to highlight where the through lines and the resonance still remains in the music. So I'm still figuring that out. Again, that's one of those questions you ask me in our three-year wrap, and I'll give you my dissertation and you can pull all your questions out from there. So now we're going to hear hey, yo, it, it's a song about weirdly not knowing what to say <laughs> when you want to say hello to someone uh, get to know someone it's a really funny i think uh, light song about the first time you meet someone do you have now like what's coming up i'm i'm really surprised at how well i'm doing <laughs> um things you know i'm like planning and sticking to the plan i'm like writing to-do lists and crossing the things off of my to-do list it's amazing but i am very excited i uh, was commissioned to do a piece that i am writing for cello double bass violin and uh, piano and voice. Uh, it was written in the ethnographic style that I've talked about. And so that is my next biggest project that I'm really excited about, as well as I have a couple of um, 
I have a, a gallery exhibit at Listen Gallery here in London. So my graphic scores are going to be shown in a gallery. Mind-blowing to me. I'm in the first year of my PhD, so it's a lot of reading. My guest today has been composer, vocalist, and performance artist, Liz Gray. Liz, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's been amazing. Are you sure you want to go down that rabbit hole, Stuart? I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Do I? What do you think? That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.